0: Everyone, I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. As a second week winds up in the trial of ex-cop Derek Chauvin, striking words from Minneapolis police chief Madaria Arradondo introduce an unheard of crack in the blue wall of silence.
1: Clearly, when Mr. Floyd was no longer responsive and even motionless to continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back, um, that that in no way, shape, or form is anything that um, uh, is by policy, is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values.
0: How does this testimony impact the trajectory of this trial? I'd like to welcome Jesse McCoy, supervising attorney for Duke Civil Justice Clinic. Jesse, thank you so much much for joining us here on Black Issues Forum. Indeed, how significant is it that this police chief gave testimony that might implicate one of his own police officers?
2: Uh, This is very significant. I think one of the concerns that our community has always expressed is there's this push to say that there are good cops. And we know about the blue wall of silence. We know that uh, oftentimes it is not very popular for an officer to testify. But in this case, we have not just any officer, but a chief and someone who has risen through the ranks very successfully uh, testifying against Officer Chauvin to say that he had no training, no experience, or no need to apply the kind of pressure that that he did to George Floyd.
0: Can you just share with us, in your opinion, what is at stake in the outcome of this trial? We've got uh, the defense argument, and then we've got the prosecution's argument. They're make, what are those arguments and what's at stake?
2: So what's at stake in this trial is, is very deep. I look at it from a couple different levels. I think at the most basic level, we're looking at the recognition of the value of black life. Uh, which is kind of what this entire case spurred last summer. Uh, We're also looking at the justice system and our system of policing in general to see whether or not um, we actually are doing what we're supposed to do and whether or not when officers step out of line from what they're supposed to do, there's going to be any degree of accountability. Um, Ultimately, I think that the pit in your stomach that you feel when you see this the mountain of evidence. I call it there, there's eyewitnesses for days, there's medical uh examiners, there's doctors, there's other officers testifying. There, I have, in my experience, have not seen a murder case with this many uh witnesses taking part. And if all of this plus a video doesn't render a conviction, then I think uh the, the concern for the community is gonna be that our lives don't matter.
0: Let's get down to what it is that the defense is trying to convince the, the uh, jury of and what the uh, prosecution is trying to say. Now we've uh, heard a lot of testimony um, about the presence of drugs in George Floyd's system. What are they trying to say? So what the
2: defense was initially trying to do is they were initially trying to establish that there was a reason for the need to exercise force. And the hard part is that everybody in the world has seen the video, right? So what they have to do is they have to contradict the video by giving you additional information that the video may not pick up. One such piece of information is, if they are able to successfully show the jury that he was under the influence of some kind of drug and that maybe that influence created a situation where he became combative or he became aggressive towards the officer, that would give rise to the officers being able to exert a greater degree of force. However, uh, what we also know is there are many people who have dealt with drug-related issues. Uh, There are many people who have been arrested or at least been uh, been, uh, confronted without being murdered on the side of the road. And we also have to remember that the police were initially called for an alleged forgery or a counterfeit $20 bill that they were supposed to be investigating. The fact that this rises to the level of a a murder while in police custody uh, is something that strays very far from the norm.
0: So either way this outcome is, what does that say for those who believe that the the fault was um, the police officers? And either way it goes, what does it say for people who say George Floyd was killed intentionally?
2: Well, the, the hard part about this case is, I mean, again, we've all seen the video, and I, I know video isn't the end-all be-all when it comes to court evidence. And
0: that's, just, that's video- certainly what the defense is saying, is that, you know, I know you're going to see the video here, but what you don't see is what happened before the video and the condition mm-hmm. of George Floyd on the inside. That's what you're not seeing.
2: Well, the interesting thing is, they presented enough video testimony. They've been in the stage, presented enough video testimony that we've covered this incident from the first interaction with George Floyd and police. We've covered it from different angles, from different street corners, from different officers' body cams. Um, but we also have something very telling. We had several, about nine, eyewitnesses, uh, people in various ages, as young as nine who now have to carry that trauma of seeing another human being murdered in front of them uh, into their future. Uh, And so for everyone who has testified, they have contributed pretty consistent information in support of the state's position. Uh, And so we we have to wait and see kind of what the defense does, if anything, if they decide to put Officer Chauvin on the stand to testify, I I doubt they will. Uh, But we have to see kind of what the theory is gonna be. From their questioning so far, it seems to try to diminish Officer Chauvin's uh, actions by trying to somehow uh, villainize George Floyd. But I don't know how successful that is, is right now.
0: Well, the outcome is yet to come. Jesse McCoy, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Like it or not, sports, politics, and social justice are inextricably linked. Last week, Georgia passed new voter laws that drew criticism from 72 black executives and nearly 200 companies. They said the new laws impose needless restrictions to the ballot box, especially for black voters. A day later, Major League Baseball decided to pull the All-Star Games out of Atlanta, and the move has drawn praise and criticism. Joining us right now is this week's roundtable. I'd like to welcome Patrick Hanna, head of the Corporate Roundtable for the National Black Caucus of State Legislators, Adul Ali, chairman of North Carolina Conservative Voices, and Misha Whittington with Advance Carolina. Thanks so much for joining us. Let me just start with you, um, Adul. When it comes to the decision of the MLB, who struck out? Who won, who hit a, a home run in this decision, in your opinion?
3: So I think, you know, first and foremost, I don't think they consider the impact to black businesses in Atlanta and the boon that this would have been, we're already, you know, suffering through pandemic, you know, restrictions. So I, I don't think they really thought this all the way through and the impact that it was going to have on black businesses. And from what I'm hearing on the ground, a lot of folks just want to watch basketball. They want to watch baseball. They want to watch football. They don't want their politics in their sport. So, you know, for from, from me, where I sit at, I think it's just an all-around strikeout bad move.
0: Well, what's particularly interesting is the fact that Stacey Abrams, who is a strong advocate, certainly, of voting access and voter rights, she has come out to say, even though she uh, recognizes and appreciates the MLB's move, she is hoping that they'll change their mind, reverse that decision, because it does damage uh, black businesses, in her opinion. Lamicia, what are your thoughts about that?
1: we always have to rely on the voices of the community uh, where the impact lies the most. And so with the black community and proximity in Atlanta and Decatur, and. Uh, nor across other areas of proximity to the stadium will be impacted, then we have to vo- side with the voice of the impacted. We've seen that across a nation, kind of different uh, feelings on both sides, right? The fact that this is a predominant industry uh, where viewers are mostly conservative in their politics leaning, uh, that even most of the players uh, professionally are mostly white, not black. Only 8% of uh, the professional players in MLB are black. So when we are looking at an industry that has chosen such kind of a historic and revolutionary boycott, uh, it's in, It's interesting to see an industry that finally is hitting back to the very base that would have supported this very bill. Uh, so it does go to say nationally, folks that aren't in community, we can say without being impacted, oh, this is helpful, right? This is historic that such a boycott is happening, because it should be on the burden of the oppressor, not the oppressed to have to suffer through uh, not seeing their favorite industry. But if this impacts black community, we need to take a closer look, not just at the historic symbolism, but we need to see how it really impacts businesses, black businesses on the ground and rally behind uh, our folks who support them.
0: Patrick, was this a home run or a strikeout? What do you think when it comes to businesses uh, taking um, a stand? First of all, the 72 executives who signed that letter and then following that, nearly 200 companies uh, taking a stand to try to influence politics. What are your thoughts about uh, taking that stand and about the recent decision of the MLB?
4: Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and I think it really, as you just heard from our previous two speakers, is that it really depends on who you ask. Uh, the irony is this. We are in a transformational period in our country. Uh, this isn't the first time we've seen this. We remember this thing called House Bill 2 here in North Carolina, when the All-Star game was taken out of North Carolina as a result of that bill. So this is not the first time that this has happened. It's sometimes uh, people have short memories, but I think that Georgia is benchmarking off of what happened here in North Carolina. Uh, we have a little bit of a unique perspective here because the president of the National Black Caucus of State Legislators is State Representative Billy Mitchell from the state of Georgia, and so some of the conversations that we've talked about from a standpoint of how this impacts the black community, uh, it's really about sponsorship, right? It's bigger than the local government and what local businesses are, how they are impacted. Not that it shouldn't be or should be, but that's really how they look at this from a standpoint of corporate sponsorships, and a lot of the companies are under miss. Immense immense pressure, uh, pressure from their employees. You know, when you look at their corporate values and this social network community we have today, uh, a lot of young employees want to know where companies stand as relates to uh, voting rights and issues that may not be germane to the core value to the core business OPERATIONS. So uh, it's a unique time for corporate America to lean in in this space. But I think some of those things we're seeing in Georgia with MLB is directly connected to what we witnessed here in North Carolina.
0: Absolutely, and you're right that so many um, people today are interested in what their business is, politics are a duel. Where do you separate uh, the interest in ensuring democracy from from business? S- surely uh, democracy is a business interest?
3: I think capitalism is is definitely a big part of that and and I'm look as a conservative, I'm pro-capitalism, so I You know, any move that makes sound sense for business on the ground is good. But I think when you look at the irony of taking that from Georgia and putting it into Colorado, whose laws are similar, if not more, air finger quote, restrictive, you know, this is just, again, I think it's a bad idea to set the precedent that we're going to impact policy over something, you know, that we definitely at least from what i'm seeing the the voter laws where they're moving the game are similar so i just i don't see how this has a positive impact um, you know who are they selling this to is the question you know who is this for you know a lot like i said in the beginning a lot of folks just want to watch their sports uh they don't really want their you know the the politics in their sports i'm a big basketball fan and i don't like politics in my basketball so Look, it's a a fine line that has to be drawn, but I agree with what the brother said, you know, companies, especially workers, want to know where their companies stand on these issues. So in that regard, I think, you know, they know now where MLB stands on this issue.
0: They certainly do, and you know, you don't like your politics with your sports, but unfortunately a lot of times it comes along with it. And right now, big news in ACC sports. Last week, UNC basketball coach and Hall of Famer Roy Williams announced his retirement. Four days later, history was made with the naming of Hubert Davis as his replacement and the first black head coach of the men's basketball program. It's in its 111 year history. At his first press conference, he addressed a reporter's question about the significance of him holding that distinction as a first.
2: It is significant, Steve. It's significant that I'm African-American and I'm the head coach here. It's significant. Um, I know that in terms of Division I head coaches all around the country, Only 26% of the head coaches for Division I men's basketball are compromised by minorities, specifically African-Americans. I know that it is significant that I'm the fourth African-American head coach in any sport in the history of the University of North Carolina. I'm very proud to be African-American. But I'm also very proud that my wife is white. And I'm very proud that my three beautiful, unbelievable kids are a combination of both of us.
0: Well, well, there's no doubt that he recognizes the significance and importance of being uh, the first African-American in this position. Patrick, um, how important would you say is this uh, in terms of looking at who is in leadership in men's basketball and in sports right now?
4: Well, first of all, let's just say congratulations, Coach Davis. I mean, I think that we can all – uh, give him a round of applause for the opportunity that he has just achieved, because it is an opportunity to allow uh, a coach to to lead a, a university's basketball team that everyone knows around the world. But I think the reality is, let's first of all take a step back. Uh, does he have the skills and capabilities to do the job, right? Regardless of whether he's black or white, is he qualified, right? He played in the NBA for over 10 years. Uh, he is a former on the U.S. Olympic team player and 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 guess what? He's been an assistant coach since 2012, so I don't know if people didn't see him on the sidelines for the last (laughs) 10 years. But but it's not like he just came out of nowhere. So I think we need to first recognize, we need to congratulate him, we need to support him, and we need to make sure that people recognize. He does have the skills and capabilities to do the job. And he is uh, recognizing uh, the historical moment that he has just achieved. So all those things considered, uh, Hubert, congratulations, we're proud of you. And if there's anything the business community can do to support you, just let us know.
0: Absolutely, and I do, I think you would probably agree it's the quali- qualification. And people who uh, follow basketball know that he's he's pretty much been groomed for this. Well, look,
3: I can't tell you how proud at least I am of the fact that here in North Carolina, we're continuing to break barriers like that. I mean, us, all politics aside, this tells every African-American basketball player, kid that wants to be a coach, that they can do it, they can mm-hmm. achieve it, and they can you know live out their dreams. And I really appreciate the fact that he pointed out he's in a uh, what's, what's the term about biracial relationship you know you can still be about black people in our cause and love who you love and I can I really appreciate that so like the brother said congrats to the
0: coach congratulations and it did raise eyebrows when he made that statement but I think that um, what you st- st- stated about kind of the intention behind putting that out there it got a little muddied LaMisha do you remember hearing the comment Oh, yes. Uh, The community, uh, at least, you know, the Black community, we uh,
1: privately are, you know, torn between, you know, our feelings of celebration of history being made and also just wanting a moment not to be diluted. And what do I mean by that, right? And I agree with the previous statements around uh, Coach Davis's accomplishment and congratulations to uh, a long trajectory of, as a student, uh, what he accomplished with two ACC championships at UNC, right? This is, he's coming back to his roots. And so it's prolific to see that he's home. But let's look at systematic inequality. Systemic inequality says that only four black coaches in the history of North Carolina have been over major UNC school systems. He's the first for UNC Chapel Hill. Okay. The history is what is elevated here that it is already inequality that he's the first. That's already a burden that he has to bear. And now it's the argument of racial identity politics to say, is he really qualified for the job? Yes. But then to that statement that has our community torn. I know how I feel about it privately. But here's the thing. We don't disregard uh, the importance of having and recognizing your wife your children. But that moment was eclipsed by trauma. And I will name it as a professor, as someone who studies inequalities, the trauma of not being able to hold that history in place and be the first, right? Be the fourth, but having to eclipse it by not just saying thank you to the wife, thank you to his children. Mm -hmm. It's also saying that in this moment, his children with mixed identities can also see the celebration of blackness in this moment. And why was that moment eclipsed? So we have those questions. Uh, we support him, we're back him, you know, behind him, and we're happy to have him here back to lead us into the next ACC Championships.
0: Well stated. Laemeshia Whittington, Adul Ali, Patrick Hanna, thank you so much for your time. April is Autism Acceptance Month. It's a shift from the term autism awareness to help foster change and inclusivity for those affected by autism. Joining us right now is a Raleigh mom with an adult son who was diagnosed with autism at the age of three. Pebbles Farrar, welcome to Black Issues Forum.
5: Thank you for having me, Deborah.
0: Pebbles, when you first discovered that your child had autism, what kind of support services were available to you? And, you know, how, how did you discover this? Uh, definitely,
5: that's a great question. because I believe early detection is definitely a um, strategy and providing the necessary resources to be able to provide remediation and support. So for his age, he was actually under three years of age and it was the early intervention um, NC infant program um, that you can go to and they will help um, kind of from birth to three years of age. They will diagnose the child based off of their developmental milestones and based off of their performance or lack thereof or um, deficiencies, they will first classify um, the child as being developmentally delayed. Until they become an age of 10 is when they do the official diagnosis of autism somewhere on the spectrum um, if they continue to have pervasive symptoms.
0: Well, as you said, early diagnosis is key. And there's actually some research from the American Journal of Public Health that's shown that black children are 19% less likely and Hispanic children 65% less likely than white children to be diagnosed with autism. How does managing a son or daughter with autism play out differently perhaps for families of color, Pebbles?
5: Yes, especially, um, I can speak to this, with a lot of clarity, um, just looking back and reflecting for me as a black mom and um, my husband, uh, I believe if it wasn't for early detection um, and just me being aware. Now at this time I was an elementary school teacher and I was trained in early um, education as well. So I was able to detect the, the early milestones of when my child was missing those mile markers. So for that awareness, I I think that was built in through my educational background, but not everyone has that 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 training. So um, it's really going to be dependent on if that child is in an early preschool program or they're in um, uh, early elementary school and those teachers are detecting Um, difficulties in that child regarding if it's their social behavior, their behavior or their intellect or their speech ability to communicate. So for the Hispanics and Black black communities, I I would see this as being uh, a big concern because oftentimes I think the cultural differences and how we relate and how we communicate um, and just behaviors and um, differences between boys and girls may cloud that picture. It's kind of hard to tease it apart. Even though autism in itself shouldn't be any different across the um, multicultural um, groups or ethnic groups, it presents itself in the same way. Right, right. And there is a known disparity when it comes to being diagnosed at an early age in those communities.
0: Well, let me ask you about some of the resources that you found valuable and some that you appear to be creating yourself to help um, other families who have children with autism. Yeah, so definitely,
5: I had to really go within deep. First, you know, you're looking for resources to outsource. You're looking for speech. You're looking for behavioral therapists. You're looking for day centers or programs that are going to provide the intellectual stimulation. Of course, you have the public school system. You can go through, um, get an IEP, individual education plan, through the special um, education department. Um, You can go through the Medicaid, the state way, and try to get additional funding um, through their um, innovation waiver program, which has a long waiting list, Um, requires different testing to be done. And um, oftentimes the slots are just not available. There are children who are waiting up to seven years to get some of these services. So when I start noticing that there was a communication delay within the system, I had to start being innovative myself. So I started leaning on my religious community, my church family, I, my, ch- my children went there. They were able to get the socialization. They were able to get the behavior. They, the children there were inclusive. They included him in the partic- in the participation of activities. I relied on my family. I communicated the needs that I have as a mom I had friends. I had their children. We always created opportunities for play dates and, and, and times for social. So to really submerse him in those environments,
0: I used to get behind him and help him to play functionally if it was building blocks
5: and the sandpit. And, you know,
0: Pebbles, I think that um, all of the things that you've um, outlined, that you've done, I would imagine other parents um, can borrow from that, as well as some of the resources that you mentioned. And I appreciate you sharing that information once again. Mm -hmm. Pebbles Farrar, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Once again, I'd like to thank all of today's guests. We invite you to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag NCBlackIssues. You can also find our full episodes on PBSNC.org slash BlackIssuesForum or listen at any time with our podcast series on Apple iTunes or Spotify. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Thanks for watching.